Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. We will be in Exodus chapter 20. This morning we're continuing our uh, series through Exodus and specifically this round through Exodus. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, we'll be in the Third Commandment uh, this morning. Got to turn there as well. I uh, have been, I always think about words quite a bit because my job has to do with words often. And a word that has stuck out to me this week is the word exhausted. Not probably in the way you're thinking of the word exhausted, though. I, uh, I had my, my outline on the, uh, the kitchen counter this morning, and I, I came upstairs, and my, my second grader goes, what does exhaust, exhausted mean? And she was reading this, and I started to explain it to her. My son's like, I know what that means. It means when you're really, really, really tired. And he's right. That's one part of what it means. It also, though, like the the definition is actually to be completely used up. So you think about a resource, maybe fossil fuels, energy of whatever variety, and we worry that at some point our earth will be exhausted of resources we need, or if you've ever scuba dived, you don't want to get to the place where your tank is completely exhausted of oxygen. That would be bad. Specifically, this morning, this week, I uh, found myself recognizing that I am exhausted. Not just tired, that too, every now and then, that's part of my stage of life. That's not a bad thing. I'm exhausted of love. I, I don't actually have any more love to give. I want to, not because I'm a, a good person. I want to love people well. I want to love people I like. That's a little easier usually. And I want to love people I don't like. But I'm empty. It's kind of like a car at some point. If it's not refilled with gas, it will just stop. And it doesn't matter how many times you try to, to turn it and get the ignition going and start the car. It won't matter. It won't happen if it's completely empty. I'm going to talk about why I brought that up here a little later. As we read the scriptures, there's actually a lot of exhaustion that happens. In fact, I might make the argument that the scriptures, as it relates to us, are about us being exhausted. And it's only when we grasp that we will be exhausted of love that good can happen and God can work. But there's another man in Exodus uh, that is exhausted in his name, or maybe more aptly said, his title is Pharaoh. And he's exhausted of his firstborn son, his heir. He's exhausted of all the crops in the land. He's exhausted of his riches. He's been exhausted of his army because a God named Yahweh has exhausted the name of Pharaoh. And it's in that context that we come to these Ten Commandments. And Nate did such a great job two weeks ago entering uh, the conversation for us. And then I loved how Luke described these Ten Commandments, that they're, they're not this arbitrary list of rules to see if God's people, the Israelites, would be allowed entrance into the Promised Land. That's not what this is. They're more like vows. 
It's like this wedding ceremony between a man and a woman, and in this moment, they're vowing towards a vision. It's not, if you do this, then we'll be married. It's, here's the vision for what life in this land will look like so that it can be good. And that's different. That distinguishment there matters pretty significantly. And in that context, it's God makes vows to his people, and his people make a vow or a set of vows to him is where we read the Ten Commandments. We've worked through the first two. I'm going to read those as well as the third right now. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Nate broke that down so well for us. Verse 4, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. I loved how Luke talked about the different shapes God takes for us in our modern day culture and churches and mind. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin through the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And then our verse today, verse 7, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. That's the third commandment. It's centered on names. And so we have to understand how much more significant names were in the culture and context of Exodus than they are today. If we want to understand the significance of this command. I was gone a couple weeks ago for some work-related things in Portland, and then last week I got to spend some time with my wife on an anniversary sort of trip in Nashville, and it was glorious. And we got to Nashville and got to the airport, and I didn't want to waste money on a rental car because I don't like driving. I love when I go on a vacation to just not drive. It's the best. And so I pulled out the phone and the Uber app, and I ordered an Uber. And the app told me that there was this combination of letters that formed somebody's name that was the label I could call them by when they arrived. And it told me the type of car, make, and model, and how many minutes until they'd get there. And then when this guy arrived in this vehicle, and I knew what to expect, he opens his door, and he read L-A-N-D-O-N, which is my label. And he said, are you Landon? And I said, I am. So he didn't grab some random stranger and have them enter the car. This is how it works. Our names really are kind of like glorified labels. Now, if you named children or you think about why your parents named you what you did, maybe there's significance in that, especially, well, actually all of my children, there's significance in their names. There's intent and something special in each. But it's still different than what it was like in Exodus. A name was somewhat of a door. It was a pathway when you were born. It described your destiny. It actually was kind of like a map. It was this description of where you would go and who you would become. It was prophetic. It was powerful in some cases. And then in other cases, a name was almost like a prison. It sentenced you to a life confined in that description. Sometimes it was really good. It's a doorway. Sometimes it was not so good. It was more of a confinement. But it was so much more than the label you were called by. It described your future and your hope. It described your identity and foundation and who really you could and should become. 
And so when we read about the name of God here, we have to understand this is no mere label. This is describing his essence and expectation, the map of who he is, what he would be for his people, what he would be against his enemies. Everything about his character is described in this name. And so it's really significant for us to recognize that. Again, verse 7. The command here is, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. So what does that kind of contextually mean? Maybe today the initial thought is there's a a series of words where we say God and add another word to it, and we're not allowed to do that. Very bad. We might think of this as using God's name in vain, and that that may or or may not apply, but there's, there's probably two most likely scenarios for the type of action and wording that this refers to. So let me uh, talk about those two real briefly. Number one, this is a command to not use God's name as a means of power and sorcery. For the most part, that doesn't really apply to us today. But sorcery was very common then, and the way that it often would happen is whoever would present some type of incantation or whatever, they would attach the name of a powerful deity to that in hopes that whatever they were hoping to achieve, their hope for outcome would become a reality. And so people saw the power in God's name, and they would then misuse it. If we just go back to earlier in Exodus... God caused all kinds of destruction in Egypt. He brought liberation and freedom for his people. He parted seas. He caused famines, food out of nowhere, all of these things. And so you combine that with this historic tradition of sorcery, and people would add God's name to get what they wanted. That's the key here. Adding God's name to something to get what they wanted. Have you ever added God's name to something to get what you want? For instance, why do we pray in Jesus' name? We might think that sorcery is not as prevalent today, which would be a valid argument, though it's still very much a reality. There are unique ways, though, that I do think this comes out. Maybe, perhaps, it's in what's sometimes referred to as a a prosperity gospel or a prosperity theology, a name-it-and-claim-it type belief in God. Name it and claim it puts who is the hero? You. So if all of a sudden your theology places you at a place where you make requests of this genie-like God to get what you want, I would argue that's probably an awful lot like using God's name in vain. Misusing a powerful name for your own good. Or if maybe you've ever told anybody that they're still sick because they don't have enough faith, or they've not said his name in the right way, I would argue that that theology might fall into this type of window as well because it's dangerous. One of the most important, maybe if not the most important thing we have to understand about the name of God is that he does not want his name misrepresented because his name is perfect and everything that comes with it is what we need desperately, not just to know intellectually, but to know in experience as well. Next probably contextual category of what this meant to God's people just recently saved out of Egypt and entering the promised land, having these vows with God is probably this. This was a command to not commit perjury. 
So in today's day and age, if you get married, you go down to the courthouse and you are going to sign a document with pen and paper. If you have a real estate agreement, you will sign a document, a business agreement, a sale of a car, whatever it is, we sign things. They didn't because pen and paper were not as easily accessible. It wasn't as easy to record and keep things safe. So what you really had were these audible oral oaths, oral contracts. And the common practice was to attach the name of someone more powerful, like a deity, not necessarily this God, any God, to the oath to say, here is the agreement. As good as that God is faithful, as sure as he won't break his promises, neither will I. I swear in his name. That's part of the origin here. And so God said, do not, it's actually, the scriptures are filled with this, do not swear by my name because I am perfect and you're not. And my name cannot be adulterated in that way to ever be known with a mistake. Not out of arrogance, but because people, you and I, we're all sitting on chairs, I'm standing, you're sitting, depend on that name and on that name's perfect record and on the fact that that name has never once nor never will fail. So there's two Think logical reasons when you look at what was going on at this day and age of what this meant. And, and those, those matter somewhat. But I actually, as I kind of studied and processed this, came across a couple of things that I think matter for us, maybe even more than those two specifics. One thing I read says this, to misuse the name of God means, therefore, that instead of placing ourselves at God's disposal, we place him at ours. And again... One thing is supremely important is our relationship to God and therefore how we use his name, one of service to him, or do we try to use God to serve our own ends? Nothing is more perverse, this is powerful, nothing is more perverse than selfishness in the guise of religion. We try to make God the servant of our purely secular ambitions as communities, churches or nations, races or religions, or else the servant of our individual ambitions, our lust for position and power in the name of Jesus. Amen. The only thing that can extinguish selfishness is love. So only when we understand the abundance of God's love do we quit using God to get what we want and instead trust that he will provide what's needed in his way and his time. It's essential to understand so that we don't misuse God's name and so that we use his name properly. Look at uh, the, the Ten Commandments really quick. There, this, do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother, not you, mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not covet. It's a pretty like basic and simple list. It's not comprehensive. And here's why. It's meant to paint a picture. It's a vision like vows. It's not everything a husband and wife are supposed to commit to. It's meant to say, here's what life can and should look like. Here's what we're going to live into. And what that means is that there's actually an inverse command for each of these. For example, do not have other gods besides me actually means follow and worship me alone. Think about it. If the, the command was only do not have other gods besides me, that's not a command to worship him. It just is no others. 
Next, do not make an idol for yourself. What that actually means is embrace that I am with you. The point God is making is that a tabernacle was being formed. Eventually, that would lead to a temple and the Spirit and Jesus himself walking with us. And what he's saying is don't be like these other nations that make these dumb wooden idols, these carved and graven images, and worship them, for I am with you. In Jesus' words, I am with you always to the end of the age. Enjoy my actual presence because it's here. That's what do not make idols means. And we engrave and make, I think as as Luke pointed out in a way last week, our own crafted images instead of embracing the presence of God. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We'll get to that in a minute, what the inverse is. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is not like, hey, this is a test to see if you can do what I say. No, it's do not forget to embrace the good gift that Sabbath is because God created us with a need for these rhythms and rest. Honor your father and your mother. That one's pretty simple. Do not dishonor your parents. Do not murder is not simply that. Like, hey, you can do anything else. Just don't murder. It's like give life. How do you be life-giving? Do not commit adultery is not simply don't do that act, but build something healthy, build true and beautiful intimacy with your spouse. The, The simple do or do not is not enough. That's not the intent here. Do not steal doesn't mean you can do anything else but not murder and not steal. It means practice generosity. Do not give false testimony means speak truth in life. Do not covet means practice gratitude. You see the difference. This is a starting place. It's vows to say here's what life can and should look like. Why? Because God is not just about being correct. This is not a test. This book is not a map to heaven or a spiritual scantron test, I like to call it, to see if you can get in. It's an invitation of a good God to embrace his love. And anything else other than that is actually only going to do harm. We're going to misunderstand what the scriptures actually are. I think especially when it comes to this third command, we have to look at the whole intent of the command. What the, uh, the Jewish people ended up doing, this Israelite community, as they heard this command and they listened so good. They followed it through and through. So much so, what they ended up doing is they heard the command, do not misuse the name of God. And they said, whoa, we don't want to do that. So you know what we're going to do? We'll just like kind of alter the command. You and I do this a lot too. And they changed the command to do not use, not misuse, do not use the name of God. They even changed how they approached their alphabet and their language to avoid saying the name of God. Did the command say, do not use the name of God? But it said, do not misuse the name of God. Do you know how often, in unbelievably unhealthy ways, we read words in the scriptures in a command, isolated, and we don't take into account what God's intent is and what the actual meaning of it is, and then we take it and go the exact wrong way. Hear this. The Jewish people listened. They obeyed this command in all the wrong ways. And the unintended consequences were significant. They swung the pendulum And that impact was devastating. I think we have to approach this command with somewhat of a more holistic perspective. I've I've talked about uh, Homer and the Odyssey before. I love this one portion of that where Odysseus and his crew are going to be passing the sirens in their song. And it's this beautiful music that will be so alluring. It will captivate them into crashing and death and destruction, all because of beautiful music. 
And so uh, there's this allegorical power in there that I actually think applies a lot to us, or we as Christians apply it to what it looks like, almost like a different version of, of Pilgrim's Progress or something like that, where there's beautiful music that actually leads to bad. And so Odysseus comes up with this plan. He plugs the ears of all of his sailors so that they will not be able to hear the song when they're in a distance where they'd be able to hear it. But he wants to hear it, and so his ears are not plugged. He just has the crew tie him up very securely on the mast so that when he hears it and tells them to steer that way, they won't hear because their ears are plugged. And when he hears it and wants to steer the ship on his own, he will not be able to. And I feel like so often... This is how we as the church approach life. We go, there's all these beautiful, amazing, tempting things out there, and they're bad. So let's just walk through life, closing our eyes and plugging our ears, making sure we avoid all the bad things. Matter of fact, let's just build a big old fence. Let's not even get close to any of the things that might be bad. And what we end up doing is taking a lot of what God's word says to heart, to our heart, in all the wrong ways, and it actually leads us away from what God's intent is. I just don't buy that that's the way of Jesus. I don't read the scriptures and see Jesus saying, don't listen to the good music out there, because it'll lead you astray. It'll harm you. What I see Jesus saying from cover to cover is, here's my song, and nothing compares the, the vision of Christ, the vision of the church is not us avoiding bad, it's us embracing the good he has offered. It's an, a more alluring and compelling and an even increasingly more beautiful song that actually draws us to the good. It doesn't just keep us from the bad. And I think that's where the Israelites went wrong. They just tried to avoid the bad instead of seeking to embrace God's intent and the good, because there's an intent, there's a right way, a good way, a way we actually need to utilize the name of God. I read this this week, I think it applies as well. Israel misunderstood, oh, not that, I wrote that, that's not relevant, this. What is typical of us is not the misuse of God's name, but the fact that we no longer use it at all. The divine name is like an old coin which has been withdrawn from circulation. What if this command to not misuse the name of the Lord is not about not saying it at the wrong time, not saying it in the wrong way or with the wrong pronunciation? What if the way that the name of the Lord is misused is when we misunderstand the person behind the name? Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps, Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens or the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, your God, am a jealous God, 
punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Verse 7, do not misuse the name of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord your God, because the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. If you have a Bible, look at the word Lord. At the uh, beginning of my Bible, before Genesis 1, so it's not a part of the actual scriptures, but there's a description about the interpretation process that every one of us that read the scriptures in English are actually embracing, that somebody did the work to interpret this out of Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek into English for us. And there's one page uh, at the very front of mine that describes the names used for God and what the actual translation is. God, G-O-D, is Elohim. L-O-R-D, all caps, is Yahweh. We read that a lot. L-O-R-D, not all caps, is Adonai. Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, Lord of hosts, Yahweh, Sabaoth, God Almighty, El Shaddai. So we read God and Lord in a lot of different variations, but it has different meaning depending on the all caps or not all caps. So let me reread this one more time with this context. Then God is Elohim. That word just means God of gods. It's just a generic title, but it's, I am the God of all gods. Then God spoke all these words. I am Lord Yahweh is his name, your God, Yahweh God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods, just the title, besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of uh, for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Our verse today, do not misuse the name of Yahweh, name, title, God, of Yahweh God, because Yahweh will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Again, a name in Exodus's culture, time, place, and setting way more significant and embodied the entirety of the person than our labels today. We probably don't realize this, but literally almost like every three pages of the scriptures, there's this verse repeated about God's name. It's the description he gives. There's a a whole book we sell them out by the donuts called God Has a Name by John Mark Homer. I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's incredible. It'll kind of just give you this framework of why God's name is so important and why the scriptures are about revealing the person behind this name. I'm going to do like a two-minute, terrible, shameful version of what that book says. I already said God is a title, Elohim. Lord is a name, Yahweh. The, the, the combination there, Yahweh, actually paints this picture. The meaning of that name is I am who I am. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you might recognize this from Jesus in the New Testament, claiming to be this same God, Yahweh, I am, when Jesus says, I am, and they try to kill him because of 
his blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. When Yahweh says, here's my name, it's Yahweh, and it means I am who I am, he's saying, I am the same today as I was yesterday, as I will be forever. He's saying, I do not change in the best way. And then he gives this description about himself. He describes himself as compassionate. That's good news for someone that's never going to change. He's never going to stop being compassionate. As gracious, meaning he's the giver of good gifts. Nobody gives gifts like our father. He is slow to anger. Key here is that he does get angry because our world has some horrendous things and people and atrocities going on, and we need God to get angry sometimes to bring justice to those things. But he's slow to anger. He's patient. I love this. He doesn't just have faithful love. He is rich in faithful love and truth. He maintains love to thousands. He's absurdly forgiving and simultaneously just. I am who I am. This is what he's saying. I am Elohim, the God of gods, and my name is Yahweh. I am who I am, and here's what you can expect from me. Every time my name is uttered, do not misuse it because its track record is perfection. It does not have one blemish. There's not one time he failed. There's not one time that he will. Maybe this command for us, do not misuse the name of the Lord, is less about saying it in the wrong way, time, place, or pronunciation. And the focus should be, how do we use this name well? This is a name that must be spoken because it's the only name worthy of full trust. It's the only name that brings healing. It's the only name with a perfectly faithful track record. The person behind this name stands alone. Yahweh, I am who I am. And Jesus takes that mantle as well. I don't get to, uh, to watch many movies these days um, for a couple reasons. Going to a movie is like a whole event because um, I have a lot of kids. The second reason is a little bit depressing. I don't have the attention span anymore. I'm so addicted to this thing and this digital world and now TV series where you don't have to like have character development after the first two episodes that I just watch shows because it's bad. But a number of years ago, I did see the movie Black Panther, and some of you may have saw that, and you'll know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, there's this scene where there's this nation, and they have a government system where there's a king who's a representative from one of the many tribes in this nation, and at certain times and places, the tribes can send a representative to see if he's worthy to be the king instead of the old king. And the way that that happens is by this really epic battle. And so in this scene, the old king is challenged by somebody new. And they have this unbelievable one-sided battle where the old king is thoroughly defeated and it ends with this literal just gut punch that seems to break his ribs, the old good king, and his face lands in this slab of rock where the water from the waterfall, it's very dramatic, is pouring out, and he's done, nearly dead, going to be soon. The old king is laying there, and then it gets quiet. There's these tribes that have been chanting and roaring and cheering. There's the sound of the waterfall, and all of a sudden, the only thing left is the sound of the waterfall. And everyone looks, and this new, arrogant, mocking 
soon to be king, rises up, pitifully looks at the old, about to be old king, and yells, Is this your king? And then he waits, and there's just silence, and the waterfall, and again he cries out, Is this your king? And there's nothing but silence. And it reminded me this week as I thought about that of another scene with another man who'd been beaten and bloodied and was about to breathe his last with people mocking him too. His name's Jesus. As he hung on a cross, there was a sign that read, King of the Jews. And people looked at him and said, he can't even save himself. How can he be a king? Is this your king. And for a time, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of mourning by the people that loved him and had trusted him. Everything seemed lost because he had indeed breathed his last. Until days later, his lungs were filled again. His heart started to beat and pump. He rose and he walked and he went to people because death had not won, though it seemed like it had. The government and evil systems of the world at that time had not won, though they seemed they had. And Satan had not won, though for a short time he seemed victorious. And today in your world, whatever your life looks like, whatever your story's filled with in this moment, it might seem like there's, there's others winning. It might seem like there is no hope. But when it comes to this name, hope is never exhausted. I started saying, I am exhausted of love. That's true. That is probably the best thing for me to realize. I'm so thankful for this week that I realized that I'm exhausted of love. You know why? Then I stop trying to love out of my own effort. And only then can I recognize that the love of Jesus will never be exhausted. It is a river that will never stop flowing. It is a source we can go to continually. And so the sooner I recognize that I do not have it in me to give what is needed for the people around me, whether I like them or I don't, I go to Jesus and Jesus is always enough because the love of Jesus will never be exhausted. The name of Yahweh God is a name where faithfulness will never end, though it will feel like it will. It won't happen. The name of Yahweh is a name where the, the giving of good gifts will not stop, where there will be rejoicing. The name of Yahweh is where forgiveness is a torch that will never stop burning. No matter how many stupid things we do, no matter how many bad choices we make and we try to pour water and fire retardant on that thing, it will not happen. That torch will burn because the name of Yahweh always lasts, because the love of Yahweh will never be extinguished this Jesus, this name, this Yahweh, this is my king. This is our king. We don't, we don't sit here and sing empty songs. Gosh, that would be a waste, wouldn't it? We serve an active, living, faithful, alive and well, breathing, resurrected king that walks with you wherever you go. And so you look around, do it real quick. Look around for me. You see these people? 
Our king walks where they walk. Our king walks where you walk. And so our neighborhoods and our businesses and our marriages and our kids and our grandparents and our places of work and our our local politics, they need who? The name of Jesus. And so can we be a people that worry less about avoiding misusing the name of our king, Jesus Yahweh, and instead become a people that pronounce that name because it is a name that has to be heard. We're going to continue to to worship now by taking communion. And whatever I referenced earlier is your story, that's where Jesus meets you. The name of Yahweh as we take the bread, remember his body that breathed the last breath. The blood that was shed as this beautiful symbolism of his love that will never stop being poured out. We consume that, and it's not mere symbolism. It is a reminder that where you walk, this name, this Jesus, this King walks with you. So during this next time, we invite you to come forward. There's station to my left and to my right and in the back of the room for communion. If you call him King, if you worship him alone as capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, King Jesus. Embrace the good news of who our Jesus is. Embrace this name. Let's worship together. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the only name that is worthy of holistic worship. You're the only name that we can follow no matter what. That you're the only name... we can know there's never a moment the moment does not exist where you will not be trustworthy so we come humbly before you I beg and plead and request that every individual in this room every story, every life would know intimately your name your way, your love and your story and God guide us to share your name Yahweh well we in the world you've placed us in need you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.